Welcome, everybody. I'm Rithila Shah. Welcome to this discussion about the psychedelic renaissance. It's part of the Futures 2022 Festival and is a University of Exeter event organized by Agile Rabbit. So let's get on to tonight's topic. The pharmaceutical industry has woken up to the possibility of psychedelic drugs for people suffering from psychiatric disorders. There's been groundbreaking work at Imperial College which suggests that psilocybin in magic mushrooms resets brain activity in people with depression, while MDMA may help those with PTSD. We're going to look at the medical, societal and historical implications of all of these recent discoveries and, and talk about the research as well. So let's meet our panel who are going to help us to think about the possibilities and limitations of what's going on. On my left is... Professor David Nutt, the Edmund J. Safra Chair in, in Euro. <laughs> Bit of a rock star in uh, neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London. To my right, Professor Christine Hauskeller and Dr. Peter Shostet Hughes, both from the Philosophy of Psychedelics Exeter Research Group at the University of Exeter. Welcome to you all. So let's begin with some definitions. Peter, I'm going to kick off with you. How would you define psychedelic drugs? Well, the word psychedelic was coined by um, the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond in a paper in 1957, though he discussed it with Aldous Huxley in 1956, the year before. And he defines it as, I mean, it literally means mind manifesting, um, sort of exploring the mind. Um, at the time, 57, there wasn't the sort of chemical analysis that you have today. So he defined it kind of phenomenologically, in other words, in terms of his experiences, um, shocking experiences of sublimity, awe, unusual visions, so on and so forth. But uh, today you'd, you'd talk about them chemically, I suppose, in terms of serotonin receptors and so on and so forth. David would be better with that. I'll just quickly point out, though, that in 1957, Humphrey Osmond, when he coined the word psychedelic, he said, even though he was a psychiatrist, he said, more than medicine, there are deep social, religious, and philosophical implications of these chemicals. And that's something that sort of um, has been a bit lost, but it's coming back. Christine, what's the modern context in which there's been this renewed interest in psychedelics, would you say? I mean, there's been interest in psychedelics in human history and cultures for as long as I think we know, it seems. But, of course, the criminalization of psychedelic drugs as class A drugs stopped the research for a long time and so it was going where it was going on it was going more or less on underground and in the last 10-15 years we really see a revival of the use of psychedelic drugs to explore whether they can filter through clinical trials into regular medical applications for psychiatric disorders. David that's the work you've been doing at Imperial just give us a sense of the breadth of that research. Uh, well, so we've done a couple of studies in depression, both of which have shown a hugely powerful impact of a, a single dose of psilocybin, magic mushroom juice, in people with even depressions which have been resistant to many other treatments. Uh, so big effects that happen very quickly and are often very enduring. And because of those uh, findings, we've now started small trials to see if we could get similar effects in disorders like anorexia nervosa, OCD, pain syndromes, and addiction. And the reason we're looking at those disorders is that they, 
They may not have the same mood or mind content as depression, but they all have the same mind processes, which is that people get locked into thought processes to engage in thinking, which is they know themselves often is wrong, but they can't stop it. And psychedelics, by perturbing those ruminative loops in the brain, can, we think, break out, help people break out of a range of different uh, mental illnesses. Given the recent history, the governmental attitude towards psychedelics, how difficult was it to say, this research is valid and it's important? Did you have to overcome cultural barriers, let's say? Oh, it was a huge challenge. I mean, one of the reasons we were allowed to do it at all was because we had done the brain imaging studies, which made sense of the reason for doing the clinical trials. So we started off asking a simple question, what is a psychedelic experience? And we scanned the brains of people under psilocybin, LSD, and showed profound alterations, unpredicted alterations in, in function. But what was particularly interesting about those imaging observations was the areas of the brain that we know were overactive in depression could be switched off by psychedelics. So we had an underpinning science which allowed us to argue strongly that we should be pursuing this research, but it was extremely difficult. So the very first study, we went to the Ethics Committee three times to get permission to give one dose of psilocybin to people with chronic resistant depression, people whose lives have been disabled maybe for decades by depression. And the Ethics Committee said, well, it's too dangerous. You know, psilocybin might kill them, and can you prove it won't? And I said, well, you know, we know a million young people every year are taking mushrooms in Britain, and no one's ever died, and some of them are bound to have been depressed before, so of course it's safe. But in the end, they said, no, we, we had to do a safety study. We couldn't do a, a controlled trial because it was too dangerous. So in the end, you had to agree. You know, we had to concede that, so we couldn't do a randomized trial. We just had to do what's called an open trial. But the effects were really compelling, and now there are a whole number of pharmaceutical companies that have taken up the challenge to invest more money into in to do bigger studies, which hopefully, well, in fact, they're already validating our findings. And, and tell me about the work on DMT a little bit. I'm kind of interested in getting a, a full house of imaging studies on all the psychedelics. So we've done psilocybin, we've done LSD, we've done DMT. DMT is quite challenging to use because it's very short-acting, as some of you will probably know. So we have to give intravenously. It's quite complicated to get the infusion right to maximize the effects. Um, much easier to take it as ayahuasca, where it's actually made in a cocktail with another drug called harmaline, which uh, prevents the breakdown. But we couldn't get permission to do that because it was two drugs, and we didn't have studies proving that the two drugs wouldn't interact with each other, even though they're designed to inter... You know, don't go there. We're also doing a 5-methoxy-DMT study, and I'm hoping, hoping within a year to have enough funding to do a mescaline study, then we will have the, the full house of the five. But, I mean, given the context, given the, the status of these drugs for so long, presumably, in the end, it's better for you for this to be as rigorous as possible because you're, you're using science, you're using data to prove what other people may feel very, very uncomfortable with. Yeah, that's right. I think it would be very difficult now for anti-drug campaigners, and there are quite a few of them. Today, you couldn't have the same anti-psychedelic responses we had in the 60s because there is a science to it. In the 60s, people could deny the clinical evidence, which was enormous, but they could deny it on the grounds that it wasn't done in, in modern clinical research trials. But the brain science now clearly shows these drugs 
have a powerful impact and they change the brain in a beneficial way. So I think we are in a strong position. That doesn't mean we're going to be ahead of the game. I mean, we're, in fact, despite our pioneering work, Britain is now lagging a long way behind America and Canada in terms of this research because we do have a government who's very, who are still anti-drugs. But I think overall, the science underpins the, the clinical work and, and it, they can, we cannot go back now, I don't think. The patients won't allow it. But, but I'm going to stick up for and people mm -hmm. who might feel these kind of drugs, these kind of substances, the safety in which they're, they're used or they're, they're made available is really, really important. This message that these drugs are harmful and dangerous and addictive, that's been invented. Psychedelics were banned in 1967 in the States because they were seen as fueling the anti-Vietnam War movement. And the government couldn't ban being against the war but they could ban drugs which they thought were f helping and fueling that movement. And of course, when the US banned them, then because the US controlled the United Nations, 197 countries in the world banned them. But in order to justify the ban, they had to tell lies about their harms. And they created the myth that they're addictive. In fact, they're not addictive. Psychedelics are, are treatments for addiction. But people assume they're addicted because they're put into a class, a schedule, a schedule in, the, in the conventions, in which other drugs that are very addictive, like fentanyl and heroin and crack cocaine are put. So people assume that psychedelics must be addictive by association, and they're not. People assume they must be harmful, but they're not. When you look at the data in, in depth, as we've done over many years now, they're some of the least harmful drugs that are available to change the brain. I mean, one thing's for sure, they're a lot less harmful than alcohol and tobacco, that's a fact. Christine, if we think about the way in which the research may change how these drugs are used, the views of them, would you uh, favour a limitation of their use within a clinical sphere, at least to begin with? I, I personally actually think that it's, well, there are good reasons to think about it the other way around. So people who are particularly vulnerable because they suffer from severe mental distress or disorders or are very unwell are probably more likely to be harmed by an experience with psychedelics than people who are not. Um, so if part of our social malaise of chronic depression or general low mood in the population has something to do with the way we live, and the way our minds are constrained, and maybe it's the people who suffer the most who are the ones who need really most care when given such experiences that might change the way they think about themselves and the world. In that sense, I think vulnerable people should really have very good care by professionals. When they have experiences that might, for example, make for them the idea of their own death much more acceptable than it was before. This is very good when you want to help people who have end-of-life anxiety, but this can be a risk when you have young people in particular who are depressed. So I think this is a... I don't think it needs to go... There might be all sorts of pragmatic political reasons why we go through the clinic, but I actually think that's a dangerous path, and there is a risk that psychedelic experiences which for people who are well don't pose serious risks of any kind are actually only accessible to those who get major diagnosis and are most vulnerable to not necessarily doing so well. And then the drugs will fi be filtered through the pharmaceutical industry and that is a whole business complex that actually adds a lot of 
a high price tag to the treatments that seems totally unnecessary given how very cheap it is to pick them from a field or to create them in a laboratory. I want to come back to that because that is a, an interesting and important point. But, but Peter, I'm just trying, trying to imagine, you know, in a world where actually everybody can have access to psychedelics, is there actually a danger that we use them as a kind of sticking plaster, effectively, where we don't try and address societal problems? We find medical ways to dampen societal problems. Um, well, Aldous Huxley did speak about that in, in one of his novels, Island, of course. I suppose the ultimate question is, do these drugs present a means of escape from reality that would be dangerous, or do they possibly give another aspect, another view of reality? And could that be enriching to society rather than harmful? You know, this is the interesting question. And to answer that, of course, you have to go, I would, of course, I would say this as a metaphysician, into metaphysics to understand exactly, you know, what is being seen. I should also add that David said that, you know, with neuroimaging, you can see how these psychedelics work and how they sort of help with perhaps depression in certain physiological ways. But it seems that another key mechanism of therapy for these drugs is that it gives you a completely new view of reality so that one could almost say a mystical or a metaphysical view. And this seems to put one's personal problems into, you know, makes it seem very sort of trivial. So therefore one doesn't have to, one doesn't care about these personal problems as much. One doesn't have to mask them with alcohol and so on. So there's an interesting um, way in which this sort of, the actual, you know, the experience, not always, there are many different varieties of psychedelic experience. You know, some of them include locating lost objects and cursing your enemies and so on. But certain psychedelic experiences seem to have this kind of um, semi-quasi-religious import that could enrich society and could be the therapeutic mechanism as well. You, you make a link between the philosopher Spinoza and his concept of the amor dei intellectualis, or the intellectual love of God. I mean, just tell us about that a little bit more. That's building on what you've just been talking yeah. about. Oh, that's, that's a dangerous question, right? Okay. Um, all right. Um, <laughs> gosh, well, Spinoza was, a, was a, uh, a philosopher who argued that mind and matter were the same thing, and so there's no soul that leaves a spirit after death, and so on. But at the end of his main book, The Ethics, he said that there is actually a certain way in which a person can achieve immortality, even though there is no soul, because mind and matter are the same thing. He speaks about the amor de intellectualis, the intellectual love of God, and by God he meant nature, um, as a, a very rare experience that can be achieved where one feels at one with everything, at one with nature, at one with the universe, at one with God. And that was the same thing for him. As I say, he was the first, well, he was designated the first pantheist. So um, it's interesting how you can sort of compare this um, Spinozan insight, which is achieved via logic, with certain, not all, certain psychedelic experiences, especially those elicited by 5-MeO-DMT, I have argued. Mm. I did find that fascinating, especially the link with pantheism. So David, to come back to this idea of how, away from the experiences, how and when we deploy these experiences, does it concern you that actually psychedelics could just become another crutch in the way that, you know, we all like to have a glass of wine at the end of a, a rough day? I think for most people, uh, a sort of five-hour mushroom trip at the end of the day isn't going to be what they want, frankly. I, I, 
I not mean, quite like running a warm bath. No, no. I, I just, I, I, I just, and also we know if you do it every night, the effect wears off. Um, you know, I think we have to see them as what they are. They're rather, they're rather different from other drugs, and, uh, and and they do change the way people think, so that they don't need to keep using them. And that, that's what's remarkable about the the clinical studies we've done, because we measure two things in these clinical studies. We measure changes, reductions in the what we would call the psychopathology, the depression scores, we measure how they go down. But we also measure well-being, how it goes up. And well-being goes up as much as depression goes down. And that's not always the case with other treatments of depression. And that increase in well-being uh, is, uh, I think, one of the reasons why people have enduring benefits and why most people don't want to be taking mushrooms or LSD every day or every week or every year because the effects are very enduring. But I want to say one other thing about, uh, to feed on from what, uh, what Peter said about nature connectedness. There is no question that psychedelics, when they're used by the people who use them currently, and you know, that may not be everyone, they do increase connectedness between people and between people and the natural environment. And that is going to be, I think, hugely useful in improving both our communities and also our relationship with nature. I'm going to... I am cast as the role of cynic in this conversation, and I'm going to keep going. To pick up on a, a point that, that Christy made earlier about the role of Big Pharma, when you think about the opioid crisis in America and the way in which Big Pharma played into that, uh, I mean, if, if the research you're doing becomes commercially available, widely available... Does that change the relationship between the drugs and the users? I don't think Big Pharma are interested in this because we are talking, you know, we can get six months of high quality improvement in someone who's been depressed for 20 years with a single dose. There's not an economic model that any Big Pharma can use to make that make money. The, the problems that we've seen you know, with, with the opiate crisis and with maybe benzodiazines before are that you have to take them every day and you get tolerance, you have to take more. But you, and that, that feeds the economic model. I mean, and this is a completely different model. This is actually helping people resolve their problems so that they don't need to keep on taking drugs. So they're, they're not going to be adopted. You're not going to be able to buy them in, a, in, a, in your pharmacy in a shrink-wrapped pack. Oh, you probably will, but it won't be, it, it, they won't be being sold by big pharma. Mm. They won't necessarily be being prescribed by GPs. You, the way I see the therapy rolling out is that there will be specialist centers in most towns, most, most around the country will have a, a specialist uh, psychedelic therapy unit of, a, of two or three trained people who can use psychedelics appropriately for people that need them. Is that a model that that you're seeing in America at all, where psychedelics perhaps are a little bit further down the track? Well, it's, it's, it's not, we're not seeing it anywhere yet, but what we have seen, or what is going to happen next year in Oregon, is that the state of Oregon has decriminalized um, mushrooms. 
and a lot of other American towns have as well. So you've got state, we've got decriminalization of, um, of mushrooms, which of course, you know, should have been, we, you know, mushrooms were legal in this country until David Cameron decided it was a, an election ploy in 2005 to attack mushrooms and get them banned. So, you know, we know you can live in a society with free mushrooms without it disintegrating, and, you know, that's because we've, that was what Britain was until 2005. But put that to one side, what's happened in Oregon is that they've decided not just to make mushrooms decriminalized, but also to set up treatment centers for well-being, not for mental illness, but for well-being. Uh, and, and that's going to be rolled out across the state, and, and they're, you know, they're developing protocols for the therapy and for the administration, and they're working out ways to source it and to how to get the quality of the, of, of the psilocybin in the mushrooms adequately uh, controlled. So this is going to be a huge social experiment. This is like, this is island, you know, writ in Oregon. And we need to monitor that, because if it turns out to be as good as I suspect it will, then it really could be a revolution. Christine, we are talking about this as if somehow in the West we discovered psychedelics, but psychotropic drugs have been used by indigenous communities for generations. Just tell us a bit more about that. There's recent evidence that thousands of years ago in graves you find remnants of uh, ayahuasca and other substances. But we know definitely that it has been an integral part in communities in particular in Latin America in Mexico and in Brazil and in Peru and in Colombia to use different psychedelic uh, plants in the form of the ayahuasca brew, which is a culture product because it's two different substances that are actually being brought together. So this is something that is a pharmaceutical, if you want, but it wasn't seen as a medicine. It was uh, more about it, the experience in a community or uh, cacti or mushrooms or uh, frog poison. So there are these substances in nature that are being, were being used and are being used by indigenous communities. And the ways in which they are now sort of becoming part of the Western well-being drive, I don't, I think it carries very complicated notions in terms of can we actually adopt to these indigenous worldviews? Do we just take these medicines? And of course we have very problematic reports from ayahuasca retreats, um, because maybe one can't just go with one mindset, our mindset, and actually participate in a ritual practice that is really built on a very different way of life and perspective on the interrelatedness of things, on animistic images, uh, of understandings of the world. I think there are some tensions and conflicts that break up and that people then experience often as crisis. The other way is that we just go there, we take it and we try to fiddle it into our system of sort of professionalized medicine, commercialized medicine and a sort of well-being industry without actually giving the context much validity from which we take it. This is a classical colonial enterprise and in that sense I'm very critical of that too. Uh, and I was quite interested by the cycle, if you like, that when uh, Western explorers, missionaries went to these places in the first place, they were so horrified by these drugs that essentially they, they set out to, to suppress their use. Missionaries, as the word says, were going out to produce Catholics where there weren't Catholics before. And what they observed was people on psychedelics might have looked to them, as they would then also call it, like 
possessions by the devil. Okay, that's a way to look at it, and we know where in the 14th, 15th century that came from, but I don't think we need to take this any serious at all. That is just the same form of stigmatization that we found under Nixon in a different guise. It is a, the purpose is clearly political, clearly to actually eradicate one cultural way of being and replace it with the one that they felt was right. That's why they went there. And I think we don't need to, need, we don't need to forgive them that. <laughs> It was just really interesting that that was, that was the response. Uh, Peter, would you... Just on a point, yeah. some, you may not all know this, but apparently one of the major concerns of the Catholic missionaries was the um, frequent visions of serpents that came to people who were using, local indigenous people, using ayahuasca. But to them, the serpent was either God or a communication from God. Whereas, of course, in the Christian teaching, the serpent is the other side. The other. And so it almost proved the point that they were heathens because they were worshipping the serpent that we saw as being uh, associated with the devil. So, I mean, that's an extreme example of completely failing to understand the content of the other culture. Peter, when, when we think about drugs in, in Western culture, I guess, do you think the association of these drugs with particular cultures then plays out in the way they're approached legally and who ends up being perhaps penalised? Yeah, I mean, um, okay, to, to take this from the last point, um, our good friend Luis Eduardo Luna, the anthropologist and Ayahuasca specialist, he argues that, you know, this when the um, conquistadors came to South America, this was not a new thing. This was just a continuation of Roman Catholic dominance, and uh, he gives the example of the felling of the tree of Thor, I think, in the 8th century by the uh, Christians who came into northern Europe and basically had a battle against paganism, which was mostly animistic. And you get that in South America and Middle America as well, that um, a lot of these cultures that use psychedelics um, tie that in with an animistic psychology. So, nothing new there. Um, with regard to culture, there is, in philosophy and other fields, this debate, which is started in the 70s, but is now being reapplied to psychedelics, between perennialism and contextualism. So people, I'm nodding as if I know yeah. what that means. <laughs> okay, so, um, people such as William James and Aldous Huxley, they were perennialists. Uh, perennialism really goes back to the counter-reformationists, but it's the idea that there is an experience, a spiritual experience, as it were, a religious experience to be had, which is transcultural. So all cultures will have, essentially, a peak experience, which is qualitatively identical, right, the same. But the interpretation differs. So, you know, Westerner will interpret it as meeting Jesus, perhaps, and someone in the jungle will experience it in, in, in other, with other metaphors. Opposed to that, from a Jewish scholar, a, a scholar of Jewish Judaism called um, Stephen Katz. He wrote that even the experience, it's not just the interpretation, but the experience itself is determined by the culture. So, um, there is, there, in other words, there are no transcultural experiences. So, a Westerner will have an experience of what they call God, um, whereas someone from the Amazon will have an experience of jaguars and snakes, animist experiences. And the interpretation also will differ because the experience is different. And so there's been this big debate between both these sides. It seems that most people take a middle route. So, for example, obviously, your, you know, your language and your personal history can have an influence in the experience. 
However, it seems an experience which is extremely radical, such as that induced by 5-MeO-DMT, for example, seems to be completely alien from one's culture. So it's sort of harder to say that it's culturally determined. But the, the debate continues, and I don't have the answer. But then, Christine, to carry on with that idea and the, and the point that you were making about traditional cultures or cultures elsewhere that have used these drugs for years and years, having kind of rituals and ceremonies around them, we clearly don't have that tradition in the same way. Would that be something that would need to be developed, that would develop? Or does that somehow make it harder for us to, to deal with new experiences? I mean, we, have, we live in a radically individualizing culture. That's probably the biggest problem we have, and that is, in my understanding, a major cause for the increase in mental unwell-being, that people actually suffer from that. So I guess it would generally be a good idea if we had some more community stuff going, but I do think that psychedelic, especially when people are new to psychedelic experiences, going out there on your own is really a bad idea. And there are good reasons why this happens. But we still understand the experience as being one that we each individually have. So it's my trip or your trip or your trip. Um, and we think, I would think, that there's not much perennial in it. It's really quite peculiar to the cultural background, the knowledges, the, the musics we know, etc., etc. what actually happens to us. Yeah? Set and setting, and we are really, as individuals, important to that. On the other hand, we know that there are indigenous cultures where people actually go on a journey together, and they go to the same place. They meet there. There is a whole cultural background of a sort of communal travel where you're actually at least the ideas you jointly arrive in the same place and you can go to different places and you know beforehand where you're going to travel. This is so different to the way in we conceptualize psychedelic experience at this point in our culture that I think there would be quite a way to go to get somewhere near that. But community certainly matters. Yeah, and I think, but I think we are beginning in the West to understand that we haven't got it all right. And one of the things I find quite interesting, and, and we've not done it, all our therapy has been done, individuals with our therapists having the trips by themselves. But we come across now quite a lot of uh, people, particularly veterans, military veterans, who are going for group therapy, usually ayahuasca, but sometimes psilocybin you know, in Spain or Latin America or Holland. And they seem to get extra benefits from being in a group. Now, whether that's because the military are very often traumatized as a group, whether, whether healing as a group is particularly useful for the military, I don't know. It, it's probably easier for them to, to be in a group. But I'm, I'm warming to the idea that, that if we could have safe groups, then groups would probably be uh, even more powerful as therapy. And they would also be less expensive as well, because you know, you, essentially you could have a, a couple of therapists per group rather than a couple of therapists per person. As a panel, you're clearly to well disposed towards these drugs, but they have been illegal for a very long time. David, do you think overcoming those sort of long-standing, deep-seated, I'm going to call them cultural reflexes to the fact that something has been illegal and suddenly becomes available, do you think that's going to be quite difficult to overcome? Oh, it is difficult to overcome um, because um, you've got a whole series of different... 
or actors playing here. I mean, one of the things I find most disturbing is talking to my colleagues who are educated psychiatrists, psychopharmacologists like me. And, and most of them have no idea that they've been misleading the world and their students about these drugs for 50 years. And they, they, they keep challenging me. I, I gave a talk in Brussels last week and, and the president of a European organization, a neuroscience organization, said, well, if you cure people with, uh, from their depression with psilocybin, all that's going to happen is that they're going to become addicted to the psilocybin. I said, that's absolutely rubbish. There's no evidence to support that at all. We've actually created such a mystique and a myth and, and, and told so many lies about these drugs. It will be challenging. And actually, the second problem, of course, are the media. The media love to, love to hate these drugs. And uh, the hope, from my perspective, is the, the American model, where, you, where the people actually make the decisions about their own health care, rather than having, it, having sort of parental top-down control by, by media doctors or politicians. And you know, that's why you know, Oregon is such an exciting new, uh, new development. And I think California is likely to go the same way in the next election. Uh, our system politically and in terms of healthcare is so different from the United States. You've had your clashes with the politicians in the past. Oh. I think, you know, anyone right. can Google oh, them. Uh, really? <laughs> did you? Did you? Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, they now... Exactly. And, but, and they still haven't learned, have they? You know, they got it wrong 10 years ago and they sacked me and they still haven't got it right now. I mean... But I was just going to say, are those, do those conversations still go on? Well, they don't go on because they don't want to have the... I mean, when you've... You know, let's... When you have a Home Secretary that dis decides or suggests two weeks ago that cannabis should be class A to deter people from using it, well, you know, you know, you've actually kind of, you can't discuss with these individuals because they actively resist evidence. Uh, so I don't think we're making much progress in this country. And you, you also hit on another very important point, which is a big problem. The NHS has a lot of really great attributes. But it's pretty inflexible. I'll give you an example. Medical cannabis has been available in this country for four years. Any specialist in this country, any, and there's 40,000 of them, can prescribe medical cannabis for any indication they like. We're the most, we've got the most liberal regulations about medical cannabis for specialists. How many prescriptions have there been in the last four years? Four, that's right on the NHS, because the NHS doesn't want to prescribe medical cannabis. The doctors don't want it, the pharmacists don't want Why? it. Why? Why do you think that is? It's partly paternalism, it's partly because it's patients have discovered medical cannabis works, it's partly because, and doctors don't like the idea that patients get, are smarter than they are, or have come up with solutions. It's partly that the pharmacists don't want to pay for it because anything new. It's partly because we've been sold this myth that only the pharmaceutical industry can do research, proper research, that tells us the truth about drugs. And it's partly because, you know, Look, all, almost all the drug laws since the beginning of time have been political acts. They've not been health acts at all. And, and so politicians still see virtue in being hard on drugs, tough on drugs. That's why Keir Starmer isn't saying anything about changing the drug laws because he knows he'll be vilified by the, by the right-wing press, etc. But the, so that, the problem is you've got multiple factors limiting access to medical cannabis, which is why my charity, Drug Science, has set up the 2021 initiative, we got three and a half thousand people having subsidized medical cannabis through the charity because the NHS isn't doing it. And the same will be true of psychedelics. So, do you, I mean, do you foresee a time when, when psychedelics might be prescribed? Well, they should be. They could be prescribed tomorrow if the government was re rescheduled from one to two for psilocybin. We're campaigning for that. We're arguing for that. We're, there are a number of politicians that want that. But, but it isn't going to happen because it's politically not, not useful to any of the parties at present, apart from the Lib Dems and the Greens. Christine. 
I, I would like to challenge you on that, David, because you seem to now contradict something implicitly, what you've been saying at the beginning when you were asked about the pharmaceutical industry and saying they wouldn't have an interest in that and why would they anyway and we only need one psilocybin. Um, now, you have said several things that actually point in the direction I was arguing from, namely that when we filter psychedelic use through initially clinical trials with vulnerable people with, which ramp up the costs for treatment protocols that are then going through approval procedures. Um, and then you, of course, need these standardized drugs that are sort of industrially produced and exactly measured, etc. how much of which is in what, um, so that you can give the precise dosage. So, so there is a whole there is a whole train of practices that you put in place through the medicalization of psychedelics that actually, if it gets anywhere, as you just said, there is, it is legal for some people who should receive cannabis treatment. They don't. We are, we are discussing whether it shouldn't be a class A drug at the same time. Yeah? The absurdity of this is incredible. And on the other hand, of course, we know that it's very cheap to produce. So why would it be so expensive? to use in a clinical environment, and the same would happen with other psychedelic drugs once they go through this whole formal process and then end up in, as a prescription drug somewhere in the system. Yeah, well, see, people don't... And the, the whole medical profession in this country has been seduced or brainwashed by people who b believe who espouse evidence-based medicine, by which they mean randomized controlled trials. And the only people that can afford to do RCTs are the pharma industry. So the pharma industry essentially determines what you get as treatments. Uh, and if the pharma industry decides it doesn't want to do a study in OCD with psychedelics, and that, then it, they will not be available for people with OCD. And I'm trying to, I think we've got to frame the whole argument differently because if the pharma industry isn't interested in the psychedelics, someone else has got to take an interest. We've got to make them available to educated doctors and other therapists in a way where they can explore what, in what we call using real-world evidence to get the best experience to understand the best ways of using them you know, and to optimize their therapy because otherwise they may not, may not become available. And I think that's why Oregon is going down that route. I think it's thinking, you know, why should we be always doing what Big Pharma tell us to do, particularly if Big Pharma isn't interested. Well, really, really interesting conversation. I am going to open it up to all of you because I can see that there's lots of interest in, uh, amongst you all. Uh, one question each, if I may ask, because I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions. And please keep them brief and I'll try and get to as many of you as I can. This is completely off what you've been talking about. And it's a Darwin question. Why do you imagine that these chemicals have been evolved by toads, cacti, mushrooms, and many other things. What's the environmental stroke evolutionary advantage? Okay, one more just behind you. Yeah, I'd like to come to your comments about big pharma controlling what drugs we all take. I'm a paediatrician, well, retired now, but... Big Pharma only interested in drugs that children would take every single day of their lives. So obviously, a one-off drug's not going to attract them. Is Big Pharma not funding any of your research? That's one thing I wanted to ask you. 
And the other thing is, how are you going to manage to get these substances promoted without Big Pharma behind you? Well, they don't need to be promoted. They just need to be used. And that's the difference. The idea that, the idea that only doctors can only prescribe things that a drug rep tells them to prescribe is bonkers. I think the medical profession has been de-skilled. Doctors aren't even allowed to think differently. Prescribing off-license is seen as a bad thing. Whereas, that's, to my mind, that's what doctors should be doing. We should be expanding our understanding and utility of drugs rather than simply obeying the law or obeying the rules. I mean, who does fund your research then, if not Big Pharma? Philanthropists, almost all. We had one, one study funded by the Medical Research Council, the very first one, and we haven't had any funding from the government since. They've turned down the last six grants. So, you know, it's, it's all, all philanthropic funding. Uh, Christine, I'm going to come to you next. Pick of the two questions. Um, the first question was about the evolutionary advantage of, of these drugs. It's an interesting question because, of course, the toad doesn't necessarily produce them for human use. They're sort of part of the animal or living environment. They exist in the plant world and they attract bees. They have influence on the sort of animal-to-plant, animal-to-animal communications. And maybe we need to look at ourselves as one of the animals in that. Uh, Marlon Sheldrake wrote in his book, Entangled, that, uh, the, um, that humans are probably the best spore dispersers for psilocybin mushrooms on the planet. So, so there might be an evolutionary advantage, maybe not for humans, but certainly for the mushroom and humans using them. So there are different ways of looking at that. I'm not sure the evolution has as its highest purpose for us to find the world organized so that it all resolves around us. I think the evolutionary world is one in which humans are just among the other animals and maybe a particularly challenging one. Um, but I would like to say something also to the other question and that is about microdosing. So there is a big hoo-ha uh, uh, coming from Silicon Valley and others about microdosing psychedelics and that is of course partly because a lot of the debate in the medicalization is now about that trips take too long. As David said, it needs two psychologists for sitting there watching one person have an eight hour or a four hour trip. That is expensive. Um, the that is why some people have suggested, indeed, to use much faster working psychedelics instead, just to speed up the process and make it cheaper for healthcare systems. But the other route is, of course, and that's one reason why you don't necessarily get in the same way addicted. It would be really challenging to go on eight-hour trips every day. Yeah? I mean, that's a life. Maybe for some people would be good, but that's, that's one of the reasons why addiction is actually not so easily achieved. So microdosing, to just give very little of a psychedelic and take it every day, is exactly the way statins work. And so that actually gets the pharmaceutical industry really excited. Because if you think about the technology of microdosing, where people never have an actual trip, but they just lift whatever they think they, makes them feel better to a degree of something, then... That is the way where actually the revenue lies. There's also another, there's another intriguing development which is sort of neither a macrodose or a triptose or a microdose, and that's a, a non-psychedelic psychedelic. So they're called plastogens, and, and there, are, there are companies in America who are trying to make 
molecules that look like psychedelics, they're based on the same structure as, say, as LSD or psilocybin, but which do not, at least in mice, produce the same effects as a psychedelic. And but they do produce a phenomenon called neuroplasticity. They help the brain grow, which is one of the reasons why we think psychedelics produce such enduring changes in people, because they not only change the brain, but then they allow you to relearn and to set to set down new ways of thinking through this neuroplasticity process. So they think that. that they will be able to treat disorders like depression with a non-psychedelic psychedelic. Now, to my mind, that's absurd because it'll be just like taking an antidepressant because you'll presumably take them every day. I'd be, I'd be surprised if one single dose will push the brain into the state. But it does, again, emphasizes the point that there's still such a lot of stigma about the concept of psychedelic. And in fact, the US Department of Defense has put nearly $30 million into trying to find a non-psychedelic treatment for disorders like PTSD. Can, can I comment on that yeah. as well? I think it's, um, I mean, psychedelic means mind manifesting, so if you take away the mind, it's not a psychedelic by definition, right, for a start. Secondly, um, if it is, if that mechanism of action of seeing yourself in a larger, a grander scheme of things is um, one of the uh, mechanisms of therapy, then of course, if you don't have that broader viewpoint, then that mechanism will not work. If it did work, it would work in a, in a different way to how they seemingly work at the moment, as we understand it. Quickly, about the Darwinism thing, just quickly. Um, of course, you know, mushrooms have psilocybin to fend off pests. and That's from a general Western point of view. Of course, if you go to the Americas, they will tell you that the, the vines spoke to the people and told humans to take them so that they could access different realms and understand those plants intrinsically. Now, whether that's true or not, of course, depends on your cosmology. Yeah, but there is a really interesting f phenomenon, isn't there? You know, why is the human brain, you know, or your brains, why do you have so many receptors for psychedelics in the parts of the brain that make you so clever? I don't know the answer to that, but that's one of the reasons I'm studying these drugs, because they tell us a lot about the human brain, and I suspect there's something, you know, that's um, important there. I think these receptors are probably important for us. We don't no. exactly know why. Another couple of questions. To what extent do you think that the reason that progress has been so slow is simply because what you've already touched upon, that it expands and um, enhances people's thinking and creates new ways of thinking rather than distorting or dumbing down and depressing thoughts? Hello. In terms of research, to overcome the obstacles of ethical issues, how easy is it to tap on real-world experience. Um, for example, I've uh, heard of a place in Cancun, Mexico. There is a clinic where a U.S. doctor is um, um, helping drug addicts especially. So if, if you were to get access to that real data, will that expedite your studies? Okay, great. And one more. I'm here to not ask you a question. I'm here to tell you and the rest of you people in this room that magic mushroom is a miracle cure. It's something to do with me having brain damage and the cure I've had from magic mushroom. Okay. I promise you we can talk about it in the bar, but well, I... I can tell you. So we are, we are doing a study of DMT in people who've had strokes to see if we can increase facilitate the recovery from brain damage. So your, your testimony makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Brilliant. So the question about um, can we use population data? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things our group have done is, is given, asked people to do online questionnaires before and after they've gone into 
retreats in South America, in Spain, whatever, ayahuasca, DMT, whatever. And it's been very helpful because it's shown that personality variables, such as obsessionality, such as mood, low mood, etc., can improve after these experiences. So they, they do give us supportive evidence, which is really helpful, absolutely. And they also give us a lot of safety data, too. Can I, can I, the first question, um, which is, I think, basically, does the experience itself, is that a threat to that cultures? Yeah. Um, there was a recent study last year from Chris Timmerman at Imperial and others um, to show that psychedelics did seemingly shift people's metaphysical beliefs. General shift was from physicalism or materialism to panpsychism, the view that minds exist throughout nature, in plants, bacteria, molecules even. So there, there is evidence that um, psychedelics can shift beliefs. Now, of course, in cultures that are very possessive of beliefs, then of course that is a threat. And Christine mentioned the conquistadors coming into America. Um, you know, the visions they saw seemed to be a threat to that general um, Christ Roman Catholic cosmology they had. And that caused prohibition then. And Puritans coming to America also were prohibitive. This, of course, has a legacy with the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s in America as well. So it seems that, in many ways, the, the actual experience itself is a threat. That is probably part of the reason that they are still illegal. Why are they a threat? Well, because yeah, panpsychism is related to animism. Pantheism, which is somewhat common, was very, very controversial in the West. You know, Spinoza, who I mentioned, was suppressed by his fellow Jews, and his books were banned by the church for 100 years. So, um, yeah, the, the experience itself can be threatening. But I think you would think in a secular world that it wouldn't be that threatening no, anymore. The truth is, LSD is the first drug to be banned because it changed the way people voted. That's why it was banned. Okay, I'm going to take a couple more. We're really almost out of time, but one at the back there, Thank and you. then there's a couple at the back there. Are there any studies alongside people taking psilocybin and antidepressants at the same time? Is it safe to do both at the same time, or is it just when they're not taking the antidepressant that the studies have been done? Hi. Yeah, I wanted to hear more from David about his studies on depression, with psilocybin particularly, how... Were the study des studies designed? Were there therapists as well? You know, how were they designed and how did you measure that, that progression, basically? Okay, David, two quite related questions. Yeah, so is it safe to take psychedelics with antidepressants? Yeah, but probably not much point because most antidepressants block the effects of psychedelics, so there's no point. Uh, in terms of uh, what do we do? Yeah, we always have therapy, and I think we should emphasize this. So our current thinking is that you maximize the benefits of the psychedelic experience by having therapists present, after, certainly during, to protect people and to support people, and after, to help them make sense and to build on the insights, and we call that integration. I think the two together is why we have such fantastic outcomes. But there are people who say, well, you know, let's just give them a shot of DMT and see if they come back next week feeling happier. We'll f those experiments are going on. We're not doing them, but others are, and we'll find out. But I suspect we'd, we get better outcomes. Has the panel ever done any sort of clinical trials or thoughts or had philosophical thoughts or um, ideas about the negative effects like bad trips or, or, or how or why that might occur or, or thought about it? The bad yeah, well, trip. we think a lot about it all the time and we do everything we can to mitigate or minimise the risk of a bad trip and that means not selecting people who've got 
history of psychosis. It means preparing people quite carefully before they go into the therapy. It means what, what being... What sort of preparation? What would that be? Well, education, you know, talking them through, telling them what's going to happen, getting them to scenario play. If they do have a bad trip, what they'll do, we'll be present with them, we can hold their hands, get permission to do it, etc. Sorry, as I said, we never had a bad trip. What we have had, and, and it's important to understand this, most of the depressed people who have a trip in our studies don't enjoy it, but they get a lot of benefit from it. And so we don't call those bad trips. They're, they're challenging trips, but they're very therapeutic. And we've now done an analysis. We've had, I suppose, 300 people. We've treated healthy volunteers and patients through various psychedelics. We've only had one person who had a, a bad trip, and that was when he was given LSD in an in a MRI scanner, which is not a good place to take it. But he was all right afterwards. Hi, yeah, just a quick one. So I work with teenagers that have experienced severe trauma. It tends to be sort of sexual abuse, neglect, that sort of thing. And they have developed a mistrust for healthcare professionals. And it seems medically they're just given sort of a shortcut, antidepressants, you know, just to keep them quiet. And in my opinion, that's a Band-Aid. I was just wondering what your opinion was on using magic mushrooms as a therapy for teenagers understandably their you know their brains are still developing we will be we, if we get a grant we will start a trial of a, a, a low dose not a psychedelic dose of psilocybin in, in teenagers who are cutting to try to see if we could help them frame a different response to the stress so they don't cut so that, I think absolutely I think teenagers are area where there's a direction we should go, but it's very challenging, it's politically very sensitive, ethically sensitive, but we are thinking about it. I wonder, uh, Christine, if you have any thoughts about young people and psychedelics. Is that something that is, again, a very Western way of thinking about how we take these substances? In different cultures, would it be viewed quite differently? Uh, actually, from all I've studied, I haven't found a culture that actually gives psychedelics to young people and children. So this point of whether in the very malleable brain this is such a great idea is really an open question and of course if you have heavily traumatized teenagers then the, uh, there is a high risk that this might not necessarily go well because with self-harm and uh, ideas of suicide ideation we know that psychedelics can actually facilitate that because you put less of an emphasis on yourself sort of death too might become more acceptable i do see this as a risk with the very young people uh i'm wondering if anyone on the panel can speak on the kind of language connection with psychedelic trips and with that the stoned ape theory and how we develop language I can say that William James famously in his 1902 book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he said one of the four main distinguishing criteria of the, the mystical experience, and he included psychedelics within that, or what we now call psychedelics, um, was ineffability. In other words, uh, you cannot put these experiences into words. However, he then spent 200 pages speaking about it after that, right? <laughs> so one can question that. I mean, from a phenomenological point of view, right? In other words, you know, analyzing the men mental states induced by psychedelics, it seems that there are mental states which are completely different from anything that one has ever experienced before. I mean, you can't even categorize it as a concept or an emotion or a color or whatever. It's something completely different. 
therefore it's hard to remember. But I do think that certain things are repeatable, and there could be in the future some kind of um, psychedelic phenomenology that could be developed. In other words, phenomenology um, could be enhanced by including psychedelic experience therein. But it'd be very difficult. Maybe music and poetry are better ways of expressing the psychedelic experience than normal language. Uh, probably as close as we get. Right, this really is our last question. Okay, thank you very much. I just wanted to follow up a bit on the, the possible negative effects because generally I'm with you all. But I lived in the 60s and I, I had some experiences which were totally amazing and I also had some experiences which I felt I was never going to come back from. I felt like I had lost myself and my mind and um, I later became a psychotherapist and worked in mental hospitals and some people there were there because they had never come back. No, I mean, I think it's important to say these are extraordinarily powerful tools. The fact is, you know, there aren't very many people who are damaged in a way which is deleterious to their life course. And we've looked and we've published just recently data on, on hundreds and hundreds of people who've had negative experiences, but they're rarely damaging. I mean, they're maybe unpleasant and you won't have forgotten them, but usually you learn something from them. And the way we minimize that, at least with, with, when we're working with our patients and our, our volunteers, is to make sure that they are properly supported. So if, as you were doing with well, others, you, know, we, you can bring them but doesn't that, back together as best you can. Doesn't that come back to the earlier point that we were discussing, that this is perhaps something that should be used in the clinical sphere then? No, I think... no. But for, no well, A, we can't, so, I mean, let's forget that, but should we? I'm not sure we should, because it, the vast majority, I mean, you know, we're talking 4% of the population are using these drugs every year, and, and we're, having, we're seeing almost no people having any kind of enduring problems uh, presenting to, to psychiatric services or to, or to casualties, so, no, it, that would be wrong. Okay. The net benefits... Are, where we've looked at population evidence of the impact, the net benefits are almost always positive in a population sense. Peter? Um, yeah, no, I mean, bad trips, there's a number of different meanings of that word. I mean, anxiety is the main one, you know, you're very anxious when you go into it, but also you can get very dark, gothic trips, you know, seeing devils, demons, you know, eyes looking at you, evil beings and so on. Um, I think an important part of psychedelic therapy today, which is uh, insufficient, in my view, is the integrative phase, so afterwards. So at the moment, we've got psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, trying to integrate experiences into a person's life. But, you know, obviously a lot of these um, psychedelic experiences are metaphysical experiences. So I think there should be a little bit of metaphysics trying to, uh, as part of, not totally, not, not replacing, but as part of that integrative phase, there should be a little bit more of a philosophical outlook, generally, rather than just something, some kind of standard form of psychology, something I'm working on at the moment. Um, also, just generally with bad trips, I mean, it also is culturally and personally dependent. So, for example, I've seen demons, devils, walls of skulls, wolves made of laser and so on running towards me. And, and because I, I wasn't brought up in any sort of religious environment, I thought that's amazingly cool, you know. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable, you know. But I, was, I thought to myself, if I were brought up as a Roman Catholic and I actually believed in a demonic realm or, or something like this, you know, I would, I would then, um, that trip would be far more terrifying to me. And that could cause long-term like psychological damage. So it really depends. I mean, it's hard to generalize, you know. It really depends on who you are, your culture, your beliefs, and so on. And like I say, later integrative stages as well, which are, would need to be developed. 
I mean, to, to the last words, we had a topic at the very beginning, this question about sticking plaster, and the question earlier about young girls suffering from sexual violence or rape uh, and being traumatized. I mean, I found in the presentations by clinicians at large conferences when they talk about who their data set is, post-traumatic stress syndrome cases seem to be to 80% women following sexual abuse. And yes, indeed, everybody who's depressed or has any other mental health disorder, and certainly women who suffer from PTSD, should be helped, but may. Can't we do something to prevent that? I mean, there is a way in which this really upsets me, looking at this data and seeing these high PTSD numbers and it all being women after sexual abuse. So there is a way in which I think the sticking plaster aspect, at least, we, we need to at least keep it in mind that we don't depoliticize this and actually still keep an eye out on why do people suffer? Why is there so much depression? Why are young people so anxious? They have every reason to be. I think we're, there's something we need to change. <laughs> Professor Christine Hauskeller, Dr. Peter Shostak-Hughes, and Professor David Nutt. And thank you to all of you. We will be carrying on the conversation. Please do join us in the bar.